For the first time ever, I am thrilled to say we have an official sponsor for the Dirk Talk podcast, and that's Ariat. I've worn Ariat boots on every job site I've visited over the years, traveling in them across five continents. More importantly, I have yet to find a single project where working folks, unlike me, are not wearing Ariat boots and workwear in every condition imaginable. And there's really good reason for that. And that's because it's phenomenal stuff. And the more I've learned about Ariat and the company, the more I've loved their brand. So with this, Ariat is offering any Dirt Talk listener 10% off their next Ariat order at ariat.com slash Dirt Talk. That's 10% off boots, jeans, and workwear at ariat.com slash Dirt Talk or at the link in this episode's description. With that, let's get to the show. All right, what's going on, guys? My name is Aaron Witt. You're listening to the Dirt Talk podcast. It's a new podcast focused entirely on heavy construction and mining. And that's what we're trying to do. My business is we're trying to make the dirt world a better place. And we're fortunate enough to work with a lot of amazing people, meet a lot of amazing people every week. So we wanted to start talking to them on a podcast and start getting everyone else exposure to these these awesome people and see what they have to say about you know, running a business or working out in the industry, in the field. So we're going to be talking to a whole lot of people. And when I first started out the business about two years ago now, one of the first, very first companies to come on board was Rosso in Tennessee. They've grown real fast. They started in 2012 and they were started by a guy named Dylan Stevens. He's the one that owns the company, runs the company, and, and the one who we've worked with for a few years now. So we've got to know him real well, and, and I have asked him on the podcast. So today we have Dylan Stevens with uh, Rosso Constructors out of Tennessee. Man, I appreciate it. I appreciate the invitation to be on this podcast. It's an honor, especially being the first one. So it's pretty cool. Yeah, I don't, so, uh, I, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> Neither do I. All right, perfect. My first, first rodeo, too. Excellent. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> yeah. So I wanted to get right into it and start talking about how you got started. You know, how did you start in the construction industry in general? And then how did you come to start a construction company? Man, how I got started in in construction really is I just got a job. You know, I had a a really close friend of mine that I went to high school with that he worked on a construction crew and I just said, hey man, can you get me a job? You know, that type thing. And uh, just started out as, you know, bottom of the total pole on a, a bridge crew just a labor. So that was pretty eye opening and pretty fun, you know, at the same time, cause you know, it was during the summer during college and, you know, just kind of, I don't know what happened, but I guess it just got in my blood and kind of fell in love with it. You know, I, you know, a lot of people that get into construction, I guess, you know, have family ties or, you know, whatever, but you know, my granddad was in the construction business and, but he was already retired, you know, by the time I was, you know, but I always grew up hearing stories and, you know, things like that. So it, it did kind of interest me quite a bit but you know just didn't have a family company or anything like that I just kind of he told me he was making a lot of money so you know I wanted a, a job to make a lot of money through the summer too you know to pay the bills and, and have some fun so uh, that's kind of how it started but uh just kind of fell in love with it and, and after that didn't have a major at the time in college so I, I changed my major to concrete industry management at NTSU and the uh, Middle Tennessee State University and kind of went with that. And uh, it's kind of a funny story 
my mom didn't believe that was a major at the time. She actually called the university and asked, you know, it wasn't very common, you know, back then, even, even construction management, I don't guess, but called the university to make sure that was a legit major. And I wasn't just making something up, tell her I declared a major, you know, so that was, that was pretty funny. Yeah. <laughs> And I guess going to a lot of people, a lot of people ask me probably daily, a few times daily, you know, how do you get started in the construction industry? So you kind of just ask someone you knew in the industry. Is that right? Yeah, I, I just basically had a friend and, you know, he was kind of in the same situation, just a just very entry level, you know, position. And of course, one of his relatives at the time did work on that crew and kind of helped us get a job. But you know, a lot of times just leveraging the people that you know. You know, you may have a friend that has a friend, you know, that, that knows someone. So, you know, I just think, you know, even today, you know, filling out an application and just sending it out, you know, is always not the best. You know, just, just like you, you know, you walked, you found the owner and went and talked to him. You know, you've got to be persistent, you know, a little bit, you know, if it's something that you want to do. So, you know, just finding a way, you know, if, it's, if you want to work in the construction industry, you'll find someone that will hire you. Yep. You know, you might have to walk in the office and say, you know, hey, I want a job. You know, and if you pester them enough, then eventually they'll probably give in or they'll know someone that is looking to hire somebody and kind of refer you, you know, so it's yeah. a little bit just being persistent, you know. As the owner of a company, if a kid, you know, 18 years old walked into your office tomorrow and asked for a job as a laborer, what would you say? We put him to work. Yeah. There you go. You know, because a lot of times it's very, you know, low risk on the employee. You know, now that I see that side of it, it's very low risk, you know, for a guy like me at that time or, you know, an 18-year-old kid that just wants to start at the bottom. And it shows, you know, some character on, on their part that they're willing to just walk in here and say, just put me on the bottom. I want to show you, you know, see what I can do and show you that I've got some work ethic and I'm going to start from the bottom and learn. And that's very uncommon these days. But usually when you find somebody like that, they're very successful. Yeah. Later in life, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what I did, and it's worked out all right for me. Yeah. <laughs> okay, now, so you're going to Middle Tennessee, and you're getting this concrete degree. So where do you go from there? You know, you're going to school, just had a little bit of bridge experience. What next? Man, I, I just, in order to continue, you know, I, I worked some odd-end jobs at, you know, Walmart, you know, places like that, and realized that, you know, I could work probably two or three days a week. And when I could, and when I could make my class schedule accommodate it, continuing to work construction, I realized that, you know, a lot of the people that I was going to school with weren't even, they were just kind of wasting time during the summer. You know, they were going home or, or just partying or, or whatever where I was going to work, you know. And so when I would come back to school, I realized that a lot of things we were going over in class, I was learning them hands-on in the field. And it was helping me a lot, you know, to understand the concepts and understand some of the things we were talking about. So I tried the most that I could to continue working that type of job in college. And a lot of times it ended up being, I went to a geotechnical testing firm and, you know, I broke concrete cylinders in the lab or I would run out and, you know, go pick up the cylinders from the job site or I would test, con you know, because I had concrete certification, you know, ACI certification. I would go test on job sites and, and things like that. And, Almost every time it seemed like a meaningless job, but to this day, every one of those little jobs that I had in construction while I was in school, I learned something. And now, you know, today I understand how to read geo reports better than, you know, I would if I'd never had that job. You know, so every single 
one of those situations that at the time it was just a way to make money and a way for me to pay my bills in school or whatever the case may be. It's actually served me down the road, you know, just for trying to get something, some sort of entry level job in the industry and not just go work at McDonald's. Yep. You know, so I just always try to do that. Okay. So you graduate from college, you have this four year degree and then what do you do out of school? You know, why'd you decide to go where you went? I graduated college in the fall of 2009 or in the winter. And of course, everybody knows the Great Recession happened around that time or 07, 08. So, you know, times were pretty tough for finding a job at that point. So luckily, I had a pretty good relationship with the employer that I ended up working with and had worked there a lot, you know, over the years of college and just stayed there and literally got a four-year degree and went right back to the bridge crew the next Monday. And uh, was pouring concrete, tying rebar, and building forms, you know, just like I had been. And, you know, nothing had changed, really, except for the fact I got a piece of paper, you know, that said I was a college graduate. You know, didn't get a pay raise, which at the time, I mean, I didn't deserve one. I didn't know any more than I knew, you know, the week before. So, you know, and at the time I had a, a young daughter and, you know, a wife. And so I just had to do what I had to do, you know. So, you know, it didn't bother me. didn't make me feel bad. I mean, it just is what it is, you know, so, but eventually, you know, I kept lobbying my boss or, you know, people that I knew that, you know, I wanted to do, I wanted to do more, you know, I just, I was always talking to someone about, you know, I want to operate equipment or I want to, you know, I want to work on a grading crew or, you know, so I just, just was always trying to show that I wanted to do more than what I'm doing now. I don't want to just always do this. So I think they, took notice and eventually probably six months after I graduated, they just kind of threw me out, you know, on a project and gave me a couple of guys to do simple tasks, you know, and that just kind of evolved into me being a foreman, you know, with the truck. I think I was 23 or 24 years old, you know, at the time. And luckily our, our company at the time had some pretty big projects in Tennessee and I got exposed to some, some of the biggest projects in middle Tennessee at the time. And, you know, it's kind of trial by fire top training and uh really that's when i fell in love you know with construction and just i worked on some deep foundation projects downtown and pretty big airport project at the national airport and you know ended up started out with a couple people and turned into you know a huge airport project with you know 20 or 30 people out there multiple crews and subs and you know 20, 30 pieces of equipment, you know, running every day and just loved every minute of it. Just wanted more, you know, and more responsibility, more, more people. And so I just, I guess I've just always been that way, you know, just, I don't want to stay in the same place, you know, so I guess they saw that and kind of took advantage of it, I guess. And, you know, put me over some crews and, and which we do that today too, you know, with young people, we want to try to see them progress. So, yeah. So you're coming out of college with a degree you moving up to foreman to managing people, did your degree really have anything to do with that? Or was it mostly just doing what everyone else didn't want to do? And then even today, does a degree for you as an employer make a lot of difference or, you know, where do you stand on that? I don't, I don't think so at all. You know, I, I don't think that every kid or every person coming out of high school should go to college. If you know exactly what you want to do and you want to be a nurse or you want to be you're 100% since you were, you know, a little kid that you wanted to be a doctor. Obviously, you have to go to college to be a doctor or a lawyer or, you know, 
things like that, you know, and if you know for sure. But I think a lot of kids just go to college just because they think that that's what everybody says you're supposed to do as you go to college, you know, and I just don't, don't get me wrong. I think I learned a lot of things and learned a lot of life experiences in college that I wouldn't have got if I just went straight to work. And it's definitely benefit. I've benefited from going to college. So I'm not saying that college is worthless, but I think it's worthless if you go spend your time partying and, you know, not getting what you need out of school, you know, and and going for the wrong reasons. If you're clear about what you want, then and college is part of it, then it's great. But if you don't necessarily know what you want to graduate or what you want to do, I think you're wasting your money. Yeah. And you could come out of school upside down, you know, so. Now, where do you, I guess you you have a young family, you're working on all these jobs. Where do you go? I mean, how do you go from foreman leading guys in the field, just building stuff to, hey, I want to go start a company? I think it was just kind of slowly, you know, kind of turned into that. I just, you know, from being the type of personality that I always want to, I always want to understand why or why things work or why we're doing this or why, you know, and, and learn everything that I could. Not necessarily, it wasn't when I was 18 years old that I wanted to start a construction company. I don't think that really ever crossed my mind. So I kind of got older and kind of at the tail end of my employment, you know, there. But I think at some point I bought a skid steer. And in college, I had a little side job, you know, pouring some concrete during school and saw a guy grading yards. And uh, he was going from yard to yard to yard, you know, and I just thought, you know, I could buy a skid steer and do that, you know, or I could do it on the side or, you know. So at some point when I was was still working there, I was on, working as a foreman. I, I bought a skid steer and just started grading people's driveways, family, friends, you know, doing, doing stuff like that. And I realized I could make a lot more money on the weekends doing that than what I was making during the week, you know. So it just kind of evolved into a lot of different factors you know I, I just wasn't happy where i was working you know just the culture was not the greatest I had a lot of mixed feelings about it and uh that one day we kind of got into it a little bit and i decided to leave and honestly i've been complaining about it to my wife for a long time and she finally told me that if you don't quit complaining to me you know you're either do something about it or quit talking to me about it i'm yeah. tired of hearing it you know so i finally finally did and was just like oh shit you know now <laughs> now what you know Yeah, I mean, what's the pressure of quitting your job and trying to start a company while you have a family to support? I know your wife was supportive, but I mean, is there a lot of pressure that that goes along with that? Absolutely. You know, because I mean, luckily, though, I mean, I feel like a lot of young people these days, you know, they try to keep up with everybody else or, you know, things like that. And we never really kind of got into that hole where we had tons of car payments and bought tons of credit card bills. And we'd always been pretty you know, frugal. So, I mean, we did have a mortgage and, and things like that at the time, but, you know, luckily it wasn't, we weren't stretched out on it. So, you know, me not being able to have a fixed income or a salary anymore didn't really make a lot of difference, you know, and I was able to have some freedom, you know, to, I see a lot of people now that they can't even move jobs because, you know, $2 an hour, or, you know, a small difference in pay just, you know, messes the budget up, yeah. you know, so that, that helped a lot, you know, just by, I guess being disciplined, you know, in that area, going out and getting a bunch of debt and you're kind of pinned down to what you have to do for the rest of your life. So, you know, that was part of it. And of course she had a good job at the time and it was kind of always a deal, you know, that she would uh, work and help me get that started. And then one day, you know, she could do whatever she wanted to do, you know, so that's fun to be able to pay her back, you know, for that, you know, cause she, she worked a lot, worked a lot of hours, still took care of the kids, you know, while I was, you know, probably 
not showing a lot for the work that I was putting in, you know, some days. So, you know, not a lot of money coming in, great driveways and, and things like that. So, but at the same time, it put a lot of pressure on me, you know, because I had two young kids at the time, you know, house payment, you know, things like that. And you just got to make it work yeah, and figure it out. So to me, I think that's good, you know, to have pressure. No, I, I agree. Yeah. We talked about that on the turn to mining group podcast, you know, someone, said, what do you think about side hustles and this and that? And I said, it you know, it just gets to a point where you have to make the leap and that creates so much pressure and drive to actually succeed that you wouldn't have if you had the safety net sitting there. Yeah. And you're the winner, you lose, you know, or you're the winner, you learn, you know, at, at that point, you know, and I just have always had the mindset, I'm just not going to quit. Yeah. You know, and if I set my mind to do something, then I just think that's, you know, common with a lot of successful people, you know, that you're just not going to give up, you know, no matter how many times. And I can remember sitting, I had a little hundred dollar desk or something. We had a little sitting area in our bedroom. You know, that was my first office, I guess. Mm -hmm. You know, I can remember just cold calling contractors or, you know, anybody and nobody even, you know, of course that time it was 2012 and, you know, it wasn't the greatest market, you know, and of course they've got these, you know, a lot of these general contractors that I'm calling to bid site work. They've never heard of me. And of course I'm sure I sound like a kid over the phone and they just, you know, it's a simple thing. Just send me the plans and let me bid this project. But they just, you know, it was very hard to just kind of break in and, you know, get a couple people to just let me bid on the project, you know, and I had no estimating experience at all. You know, I was all field, you know, up to that point, which I guess a class in college or, or something like that. I at least knew how to work an Excel spreadsheet. Yep. So I just kind of figured it out, you know. So how do but you... But at the same time, I, I didn't have... Ten dollars to lose. I didn't have ten dollars to my name. Yep. You know what I mean. So it, it's just the pressure side of the game. So when you don't have any money and everyone, you know, oh, I got a skid steer. How one? How the hell do you get a skid steer? How does that even work? Well, up until that point, I don't think I maybe had one truck loan, and it was very small. I think the skid steer cost more than my truck at that time that I pulled the skid steer with. So I had a friend that worked at a local bank, you know, in my hometown, and we went to high school together and. When I went to buy the steer, I mean, it was kind of a, my credit, you know, I didn't have much of a credit history. It was kind of a high risk loan for them, you know, so I kind of knew that. And going into it, I just said, I'm just going to pay it off as fast as possible, you know, and just take every dollar that I make and just pay this kid steer off, you know, so that's what I did. And then after that, I mean, it was just kind of, you know, I built up a rapport with the bank and they just kind of trusted me and believed in me and, you know, just kind of, let me buy another piece of equipment, a trailer, a, you know, a truck here and there, you know, and then I, of course I had to go to him with some bigger investments, you know, a seventy, eighty thousand dollar excavator, you know, and so it just kind of grew. I didn't do it all at once. I knew I just kind of did the economics of the math, you know, when I first started. I knew I couldn't, I didn't have the money to make all these payments, you know, an excavator payment, three, four thousand dollars. I didn't have enough money to make two or three payments. Yeah. You know, so I worked out a deal at the bank to where I could make interest only payments for a short amount of time just to get going. You know, when I did buy a dozer and an excavator and, and things like that, and that helped a ton. You know, helped me build a cash flow and build up some cash and not just be making all these payments. You know, so and I never paid myself anything. You know, for probably three or four years. You know, not much at all. Maybe a couple hundred bucks. You know, here and there, and finally went on a five hundred dollar a week salary. You know couple years after that, you know, it's just being disciplined enough not to just spend every dollar that you make, you know, and actually try to build something bigger, you know, and use money as just a resource, 
and a tool, you know, to get you there. It's not just a slush fund, you know, top mentality. So yeah, it's the, that it's, helps a lot. It's definitely the chicken before the egg argument. And we're going through this right now. We're, we're trying to grow and we need to go in, in our business. We need to go hire more people to do more work, but you need to get more work to hire more people. And I think you were in the same situation. It's a little bit different in the contracting business, but you need the equipment to do the work, but you need the work to pay for the equipment. And so I guess you need that banking relationship in, in the middle to make it happen. Yeah, that, that was exactly how it worked. I would try not to, you know, tell anybody I only had a skid steer, you know, at the time yeah. or, or anything like that. And, and when I first started out, too, my, my father-in-law, he does construction as well, and he had a dozer and an excavator. And, you know, part of how I got some projects done in the beginning is I would partner with him, you know, on, on a couple projects. We would just, you know, split the proceeds of the project. You know, I would go get the job, and then he had a few pieces of equipment and some guys, and I would try to, you know, take those guys and that equipment and build the job. But at the time, those were very small, you know, projects and nothing complex or, or anything like that. And that also helped me. He helped me a lot, you know, and just his, you know, business mentality, you know, just dealing with banks, you know, I probably learned a lot from him, you know, also. So, but there's just a lot of things and getting the work before the equipment is definitely what I always try to do. I can remember one of the first big projects we got was a warehouse project and honestly I had no business been a project that of that type. I think it was a hundred thousand square foot expansion. Same type of project you went to last, you know, last time you were here in town yeah. about that size project. And, uh, we had three guys and I didn't even own a dozer at the time. <laughs> and, uh, we got that project and I just knew that, you know, I'm going to have several weeks, you know, of lead time up until we have to sign a contract and we've got to be there. I can figure it out, you know, so they were awarded the project and they awarded us the subcontract and, uh, I was on the phone with Carter Machinery in Virginia, and they had a D6K up there, and they delivered it to the job site. I didn't have a low boy, didn't have anything. I didn't even have any contacts to go pick it up. And uh, they had it delivered to the job site, and then uh, that was it. You know, and it just act like it, we we had it at the shop or something. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know so. how how like to bid that kind of job though? How do you even get to the table in the first place to make them feel like? feel confident enough to hire you even when you don't have a piece of equipment to do the job to start with that particular project my cousin worked for that general contractor and i had been talking to him you know persistent you know with him i need to bid i need to bid some work with you guys bid some work you know and then finally you know his boss you know like, sure let him bid this job okay you know and so again uh, using my network or people i know to you know try to make something happen you know and so and again, I had a lot of pressure there because, you know, it was kind of my cousin's job on the line there that if he kind of referred this bozo to come do this job and it wasn't successful and he's going to get, you know, kind of have some repercussions too. So, you know, just making sure that we did what we said we were going to do, you know, no matter what, that we're going to finish and we're going to do it right and do a good job. So. Okay. So from there, and I talked to a lot of people about this and I think a lot of people, they'll start a construction company or, you know, construction company in quotes, which is a skid steer on a trailer pulled by a truck. Great in driveways, just like you did. But then you, so you started there, but now you guys are doing tens of millions of dollars in revenue, you know, lots of people, lots of jobs, lots of equipment. How do you, you know, you had the early years, at what point did you start to scale and how did you actually scale the business beyond just you and a skid steer? I think my past experience had a lot to do with that. I don't think, that if I had all my experience was 
putting in septic tanks and residential water lines and yards. And if that's all it consisted of, I would never have been exposed to what we're doing now. So I'm super grateful for the experience that I got, you know, up until the point of, of starting Rosso Constructors. But I guess me getting exposed to that side of the industry, I wasn't okay with just doing what I was doing. You know, I wanted to get back there. And I had, you know, some drive to, you know, make some people mad and disrupt the, the whole industry where, you know, you know, just prove people wrong, you know, that, that told me I couldn't, there's no way, you know, good luck with that, you know, top mentality that, you know, yeah, you'll, you'll be back over here in a couple months or whatever. And I've just always been, you know, one of those top guys that somebody tells me I can't do something, I'm going to, I'm going to do everything in my power to prove them wrong yeah. and never forget it. Yep. I can and, relate uh, there. Honestly, just use that for fuel, you know, and smile at them and, wink next time you beat them on a project <laughs> so that was the biggest part i think the type of experience that i got i just wouldn't have any and that's why i think it's so important for people that maybe want to do what we're doing or want to start a you know construction and go in the field and go you know go work for somebody that's got structure or even go work for a small you know just work for all kinds of different companies and just see what you like you know and and you learn a lot you know all across the board but I did you, a lot to do with it. you know, people saying, you know, good luck with that and all that. Did you ever doubt anything? Did you have any self doubt in those early years or even now? No, there's never been a plan B. There's never been, you know, I would just kind of brush it off and, you know, not, not worry about it, but it would just fuel me even more, you know, even if it's somebody close to you that yeah. you can tell just doesn't really believe in what you're doing. It just, it didn't matter, you know, and, my wife has always believed in me and my kids, you know, and that's really all that matters, you know, most of my family. And I don't think, honestly, anybody but me has ever imagined that it, we would be as, you know, have as big of a company or be doing as much revenue or anything that we're doing besides me. But I just always believe that, you know, from the beginning and just have always kind of thought that way, you know, but just because of how efficient and, you know, everything was ran before and that type of experience that I had. So it never really affected me. I don't think. How did you guys differentiate as you started growing? How did you differentiate yourself from the, you know, the old school contractors in the market? How do you do things differently from the beginning? I think in the beginning, just, I guess not over promising, you know, just try to impress people because that was really the only way that, you know, we could differentiate ourselves is, you know, you've kind of got a, you know, in the beginning they had, you know, me as the owner of the company and I'm the project manager and I'm the foreman. So they had a direct contact with the owner, but, you know, just under promising and over delivering, you know, and just knocking their socks off whenever we came out to a job site. And, you know, that one project was 60 days and, you know, almost an impossible schedule. And we worked 14, 15 hours a day, stayed in hotels just to make sure that we would do super work and do it early and finish early. You know, and take, you know, basically a bunch of guys that have never done a job like that before and just turn them into all these A players, you know, and so, and just coach them. And, you know, and so I, I just think just trying to impress people by our work ethic, you know, the quality of our work and, and doing things the right way and, and not cutting corners and, you know, stuff that everybody says, but they just don't do. Yeah. You know, or they don't follow through on. But early on, I think that's what we had to do. And communication, you know. A lot of times, you know, these estimators with these companies that I would be bidding to, you know, they're talking to me, you know, and I would be really efficient. And I didn't get a lot of emails back then, you know, so it was, 
easy for me to respond quickly, you know, to them and, and have good communication. And I think that goes a long way. And I try to stress that, you know, to our people now and try to do a better job of it myself, you know, too. But these days. Yeah, man, if you can answer my emails quicker. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think it's just like the basic stuff, you know, just basic. Yeah. If you do it really, really good, then. I guess it's the basics and then doing it consistently. I see a lot of people, they can be really good at the basics for a short amount of time, but they drop off pretty quick. Yeah. So did did you, yeah. I guess starting out, did you screw things up? I mean, do you have any notable screw ups or mistakes that you guys made that really taught you some good lessons? I mean, every day. <laughs> I, I feel like in the beginning, it was, you know, when I was by myself, I would, you know, I remember getting a flat tire one time with a skid steer and had the skid steer on the back of the truck and, you know, had to unload the skid steer and take it and jack the trailer up and call somebody to come get a tire. You know, I had no way, you know, just crazy stuff like that. Or, you know, even, you know, one of the earliest projects, there was a a surveying issue on it. And uh, basically the whole side had been built three and a half tenths. uh, I think it was too high. And it was, the new building pad was tied into the existing building, so it, that couldn't work, you know. So, and by that time, we had built the entire project. I built a box cover, a bridge, and laid all the storm drainage, and you know, so it was a huge ordeal, and you know, I had to get attorneys involved, and so I just feel like I learned ten years worth of lessons on that very stressful project early on, and you know, didn't get paid. You know, I think I was down to four or five thousand dollars in my bank account had some payroll due you know and had to get attorneys involved to get us paid and i think they owed us a hundred or a hundred fifty thousand dollars which at the time i mean that was tons and tons of money you yeah. know that was kind of a tipping point you know and one contractor had sent me a check one time that was short but it said final payment you know which basically if i i guess if i had cashed the check and i wouldn't be owed anymore and you know just having i guess discipline enough just to not compromise and just not take less, you know, even in that situation where I could use the money. I really needed it, you know, at the time just to make things work. And, you know, one thing I learned really early on too that, you know, is I guess not talked about a lot, but in starting a business at that time, I couldn't really get any accounts. You know, everybody runs on accounts and POs and, and, and things like that. You don't really run off in, in construction, we don't really weren't able to run off a credit card, and uh, the bills just got you know too big for it, and uh, couldn't really get anybody to open an account just because of the time. And I guess a lot of people had defaulted on accounts, and you had to have two or three years worth of you know business or references to even open an account. In a lot of places, and I just realized when I did get an account open with a quarry or you know a vendor or something like that, I would just pay them early and uh, just build up that reputation with the vendor, you know, so that they knew that they didn't have to worry about it, you know, uh-huh. stretching them out to 60 or 90 days or, and I've just always been that way. You know, I just, I would sign personal guarantees. I didn't care. You know, I just thought, you know, it's my company. And if I don't get paid, I'm going to figure out a way to pay them. You know, it's not their responsibility to worry if this contractor pays me or not, you know, yeah. they're selling me something. So, you know, they get paid first and then I'll just have to deal with it. You know, so I've just kind of always had that mentality and it's paid off for us a lot. We've got a lot of really great relationships with our vendors now. And, you know, we still do that to this day as much as we can. I've seen a lot of contractors or I guess bigger companies, they're, you know, the paid when paid clauses. And so, you know, a big contractor, they don't 
in the grand scheme of things, if they don't get paid, it sucks, but you know, they don't need that money to survive, but then they go screw their subcontractors or whoever else they're working with their vendors because, well, we didn't get paid. So you don't get paid. But then the vendor's sitting there like, well, what the hell? I need my money to make payroll this week. Yeah. It's just, it's just not supposed to work that way. Yeah. You know, and it's not vendors are are selling you material or they're selling you a product that, you know, it's just not, it's not the right way to do business. And that's pretty common. And people use that as an excuse Well, everybody else does it. So, you know, get used to it, you know, or uh, we just, that's another way we try to differentiate ourselves from everybody else. And we do a lot with truck drivers. You know, we don't own any dump trucks and we don't have to because, you know, we kind of view that the same way with the dump trucks that, you know, they want to work for us more than they want to work for our competitors or anybody else needing a dump truck that day because we pay them early, you know, because those, a lot of those guys have, you know, bills just like we do and fuel bills and tires and maintenance and everything else. And they, they can't be sitting around waiting on their hourly fees for 90 days because you haven't been paid. It's just not fair. So. You know, it's our job to have enough cash to pay all these people when we're trusted. So that's just kind of how we approach it. And it helps us too, because they would rather work for us yep. than work for people that don't pay them. So where, and we probably should have talked about this early on. Where are you guys at today? As far as, you know, what does the company look like today? What does Rosso look like today? What are you guys working on? You know, what does your fleet look like? Can you provide some context there? Yeah, we've got, I think we've got somewhere around 70 employees right now. And right around 40 pieces of equipment that we own, anything from a D8 to 279 skid steer to 336 excavators and down to a 305, you know, mini X, you know, motor grader, GPS on every blade pretty much, and even a couple excavators. We're doing pretty large road and municipal projects plus, you know, pretty large commercial and private, you know, projects as well. Anything from a hotel to, you know, an airport runway, city streets state roads, pretty much the full gamut, you know, grading, utility, you know, water, sewer, storm, electrical. Yeah. Can you explain your technology adoption? I know. So in construction, it's super popular to talk about technology, but with all my travels, I rarely see it actually utilized. I think the way it's supposed to be utilized, especially in the field. So these owners love to talk about it or this and that, but you guys, Rosso in particular is definitely one of the only companies I've seen that has technology utilization across the board as far as even like all of your foremen using iPads every single day for everything. I mean, your foremen almost don't even put their iPads down. Can you explain how, you know, what the rationale was behind implementing that to begin with and how you've been able to convince some of these, you know, old dogs, so to speak, to utilize new technology that they've never touched before? Yeah, I think uh, the biggest part of it, I, I think, at the time, and we, and we've, we've been doing this for several years. You know, I think we've had the iPads in the field for at least two years, if not longer, you know. So, and at the time that we decided to, we've always kind of, and being young, and of course, you've met Sean Hampton, who's our vice president, and he's a very tech savvy guy, you know, so am I. And so between the two, he was pretty much employee number one, uh, has a lot to do with, you know, not just me, but, you know, a lot to do with where we're at today, you know, and that's, Probably a lot to do, you know, our technology adoption is probably a lot to do with him, you know, more than it is me. But, you know, when you're a young company and you're small, you're kind of at a disadvantage, you know, when it comes to everyone else and the way everybody's been doing things. But we saw it as we had an advantage, you know, because technology is very expensive. You know, if you go buy just a GPS system, for instance, 
you know, a basin rover and a cab kit for a dozer is over a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. And, you know, technology like heavy bid, you know, heavy job, all these other things, they're very expensive too. But when you buy one license and what we were doing at the time is we just saw it as an investment. And instead of hiring a person, we could, you know, integrate some technology in our company so that we didn't have to hire that person yet and keep our overhead down. And then as we grew, we're just adding a license and one more license. And so we did that with a lot of technology pretty early from ag tech to, you know, I can remember calling people asking for CAD files and they had no idea why we wanted a CAD file. <laughs> and we didn't even, the project wasn't even ready to start yet. And it had to explain to them, well, we're going to use it for estimating. Well, how do you do that? You know, and it's not been that long ago. And now everybody does takeoffs on the screen and it's pretty common now, but just simple stuff like that, you know, just buying one license. And yes, it was super expensive, you know, at the time, but I feel like we're adding licenses across everything that we have now every single year, you know, and for a company, say a hundred million dollar company that's got hundreds and several hundred employees, you talk about how expensive that is to make the wrong decision on a technology, you know, like TopCon versus Trimble. You know, if they'd went the wrong way and then all of a sudden one day they decided to switch to TopCon from Trimble. Well, that's yeah. going to be several million dollars to make that change. Whereas with us, we just really vetted all the options that we had and decided we're going to use this. And this is what's going to be best for us when we're doing $100 million. So we're going to start now. And this just paid off big time for us to have started that early and just build on it. So, well, and, and in order to get people to use it, yeah. Heavy job, for instance, the iPads, you know, with iPads in the field, it, it, I thought it was pretty common at the time, but I guess it's not. Even people that I talked to that had heavy job, a lot of the guys still don't use them. But we had, you know, I don't know, five or six crews at the time or maybe seven. And we just took a couple young guys, like two guys, and let them play with it, you know, for a couple weeks and figure it out and understand the system. And then let them go live, you know, for two weeks and they're doing their time cards in there and then get feedback from them, sit down with them, go over it. And of course we knew everything about it. We'd been to UGM. We'd been to all these conferences and trainings and we were training them. And then we trained them so good that they could help us train everybody else. Mm -hmm. you know, and then we would do two more guys and then two more guys. And then it grew until everybody, you know, was on it. And we basically sold it to them that this is going to help you do your job better. One, it's going to save you a lot of time. You're not driving halfway across the state, coming back to the office every Monday to turn in these paper forms and all these paper time cards. And, you know, it's going to help you do your job better. And not only that, but it's going to help you see job costs on this so that you can do your job better. And sold it in a way that, you know, which is true. You know, a lot of, a lot of guys in the field are always pinned with job performance. Or the job did terrible, so it's the foreman and the superintendent's fault. And that may not always be the case. They may have done everything that they possibly could have and done it 100%, you know, hit all production and still lost money. Yeah. Well, then at that point, it's an estimating problem. It's not the superintendent, but it's always the superintendent's problem. So we, you know, we're just transparent with them that we're trying to get as much data as we can so that we can get better. And if we're, you know, too cheap on some projects and we lose some money, then we know we need to raise prices in these areas. And if we're too expensive, you know, it's not a bad thing is making too much money, but you can also be more competitive if you can dial it back, you know, and, and get more work because 
the guys in the field are doing better than what you projected. So that's kind of how we sold it to them. And, it, and it's, it's worked so far. And, you know, we've got guys all age ranges, you know, anywhere from people in their 20s to guys in their late 50s or 60s, you know, using iPads. And a lot, some of them didn't even have an iPhone at the time. So, so you, it's been very successful. I guess you, so you used whatever technology it was, you used their resources to teach just a few people that kind of get it to start. And then they turned into the teachers for everyone else within the organization. So it's the older guys might be more comfortable because they're just talking to someone that's a peer rather than some guy from some tech company that they don't know and respect tech. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. Okay. And then they're all, you know, they're all in it together. You know, they're all calling each other or texting or emailing or, or, and we have a lot of meetings, you know, in rain days, we bring a lot of the foremen and the superintendents in the office and, you know, just find something to train them about or talk about, you know, what kind of problems you have. You got, you know, IT issues with your iPads or, or what's the problem you have. And, you know, then they'll talk to the estimators. Can you fix these space codes in the, you know, inner iPad, you know, this equipment number's not in here, you know, just let them know that they're, we're not just throwing them out there, you know, with, all this new stuff and, and trying to add more to their plate. We're trying to give them more time to do what they're there to do. Yeah. Not the other way around. Okay. With this company, you know, you have 70 plus mouths to feed. And from my understanding, it's going to be more this year and a lot more in the, the later years. What keeps you up at night now that you have so much responsibility, so many people to take care of, what worries you? I mean, I think the biggest part is just keeping enough work and keeping everybody, you know, cause as you grow, you know, you get more equipment, you get more people, you know, you just, you need way more backlog, you know, to make things click and work the way they should or the way they used to, you know, so it just keeping everybody all on the same page, you know, the estimators to the project managers to, you know, I'm involved with, you know, just about every side of it. So just the biggest thing is just making sure that we, we have enough work, you know, for everybody to stay working, you know, and, and stay busy, you know, cause the last thing we want to do is, Things get tired or, you know, things slow down and then have to let people go. It's just not how we want to do business. So that's probably the biggest thing that I think about, I guess. Gotcha. Now going, I feel in this industry, a lot of people talk about, you know, equipment, the work and all that, but rarely do people talk about personal lives. And I feel like that's a big problem in this industry. I see, you know, alcoholism, divorce, drug abuse, all that kind of stuff. It's pretty rampant in the world of construction. And so I want to talk more about talk with people about, you know, families and how they've done it. So how you having such an early family was starting a company. And then up until now, you know, your family's still young and you're, you're running this big construction company now. How do you separate the two? Do you separate the two? How do you make sure you have enough time for both things? Cause I know they're both extremely important. It's hard. It's, uh, it's probably one of the hardest things that there is. Cause you know, I don't know if you read uh, Jocko's book, you know, dichotomy of leadership I, I feel like after reading that book everything is a dichotomy you know you get too far on the one side you got to fix it you know you get too far on the other side and you gotta you know so our my kids and you know a lot of our employees kids you know you'll see them in the office and you know my wife brings our kids over there a lot of times you know after school they'll be doing homework or you know so I just feel like it, it's not two separate things you know I feel like you know, I want to know, you know, I think all of our employees, you know, we just kind of have a family mindset or a culture, you know, and everybody, you know, doesn't keep that from everyone. I guess it, it's cool to talk about, you know, or what are your kids doing or, you know, we want to sponsor their ball teams and, you know, stuff like that. But as far as, you know, my side of it goes, it's a hard thing to, to juggle, you know, because you got 
you know, a lot of times 70 people that kind of want your attention or want your time. And then you got, you know, four or five when you get home to that, that want it. So it's just hard to, to manage. But for myself, to make sure that I do do that, I've just gotten to the point to where I, I just have to go home at a certain time, you know, or I'll, I'll stay there around nine or 10 o'clock, you know, like I did when I first started. And I'm, I'm just, I can be a workaholic pretty easily. So I just have to stay disciplined. And, you know, my excuse now is, you know, I got to go to the gym before I go home, you know, so that kind of gets me going and making sure I got enough time to get home in time for dinner, you know, stuff like that. And just making sure it's just being all right with, with leaving and leaving some things that may not have got done today, you know, so that's the biggest thing for me a lot of times is making it a priority to go home Gotcha. and we encourage all of our people to do that too you know and we don't expect them to work 16 hours a day seven days a week you know and that's because it's it's important for them to have a family life at home as well and be able to go to their kids ball games on saturday and go to church on sundays if that's what they want to do you know so yeah and a lot of companies i think they just don't they don't think that they that matters. No. Um, I think it does. Well, going back to, you know, oh, this just what everyone else does. I feel like you know, with a lot of companies working seven days a week or, you know, working 12, 14 hours a day is the norm. And I think, I mean, yeah, some projects do call for night work, weekend work, a lot of, you know, demanding hours real quickly, but a lot of projects I think can just be planned better. And if they're thinking about, all right, how do we do this exact same project but using only a 40, 50 hour work week rather than considering 60 to 70 is even an option. Can we make it work? And I think based on a lot of projects I've seen, I think the answer would be yes. I think they could make it work if they just planned that, okay, this is how much time we have and we want to make sure everyone gets home with their family. Let's take that into consideration while we're planning the project to begin with. Yeah. I think it, it relates in so many different levels, you know, too, that, you know, we rarely work Saturday. And I feel that in incorporating that and, and being sticking to that as much as we possibly can, it, it lets people go home and rest and be with their families. And on Monday, they're happier. They're more productive. They're safer, you know, because they're not just worn down and broke down from working, you know, 80 hours a week before, you know, and honestly, sometimes that hurts us, you know, because a lot of people, they want to work as many hours as possible to make as much money as they can. So, it doesn't work for some people that come here and they just are disappointed because they don't get 80 hours. But I feel like if you can get done the same amount of work, if not more, with more productive, happy people from Monday through Friday, then working Saturday is just simple. Yeah. And it, it's not necessary. You know, and really in a way, I guess we need more people to do that. But, you know, it, it's the same trade off, you know, because you can have one and a half times more people to do the same work, you know, or, yeah, I don't know. I just, it's work for us. I know it works and it doesn't work for everybody. And, but I, at the same time, I think a lot of people are just worried about the bottom line and as much maximizing profit and productivity is the only thing they think about. And they don't care about anybody else's family activities or, or life, even though they care about theirs, you know, and they're not working on weekends and missing football games and things like that, you know. Yeah. Along with, with our people. Oh, that's the know, worst so. part about it. Yeah. So you're yeah. saying you can make money while also taking Saturday and Sunday off. I think you make more money. Yeah. I, I agree. You know? I completely agree. <laughs> that's, but that's a novel concept in this industry. 
yeah, I mean, it's all pretty simple, you know, but most people, that's why I don't care to talk about it. I don't care to share it on social media, you know, the stuff that we do because it's all the basics. Yeah. You know, but people, it's the golden rule type stuff. You know, it's not, people are just not going to do it. You know, so it doesn't matter if we tell them everything that we're doing. They're just not going to do it. Yep. So. Uh, I, I agree. I guess going back to like parenting, after being in this industry for a while, learning what you learned, you know, going to college, starting a company, what are the kind of values and things you want to instill in your kids? What are you trying to teach your kids today that hopefully prepares them for, you know, the life that you want them to have? I think work ethic. One, you know, and doing things the right way, you know, and worrying about the little things, you know, details. And also, you know, a little bit of entrepreneurship. You know, our oldest, our daughter, you know, she wanted a cell phone not too long ago. And, you know, she had she had to save up the money and get it. And, you know, it taught her, you know, the value of a dollar, you know, what it takes, how much, you know. And to her at the time, you know, we made her save up $500, you know, to an 11-year-old. That's like... 500,000. Yeah. And she just, it just seemed like a, a, the Mount Everest mountain that she could never climb by making $5 at a time and just sitting down with her and breaking it down. You know, if you, if you do this, you make $5. If you do this X amount of time, then, you know, it takes you this many months to make, you know, just simple little things that, you know, our parents teach us and, you know, just trying to basics, you know what I mean? And, and just teach them things like that and teach them sports. And I think sports are really good for kids and just getting knocked down and, and not being as good and, and having to work to get better, you know, and, and putting a mindset in kids to, to get better every day. And I think that carries forward in life. And it, it served me a lot too, but especially playing baseball. I think I talked to Jack about that a lot last time you guys were here, yep. you know, failing and getting back up and, you know, going again anyway. So just a lot of that type of stuff. Yeah. I mean, that's basically what business just, is. It's just getting punched over and over and over again and just getting back in the fight. It seems like daily. Yeah. Yeah. And waking up and just walking right into it, be willing to take it, you know, again. So, and you never know when it's going to happen, but that's what makes it fun at the same time. Now what going to you, what have you done? And we've talked a lot about this over the past year and we go back and forth all the time, you know, what we're reading, who we're listening to sending each other podcasts and, you and I both listened to Andy Frisella, Ed Milet, you know, a few others. What have you done in the past year in, in particular or in general that's really developed you as a human and sharpened your mind so you can, you know, do better with the business, do better with your family, do better life overall? Well, I feel like the biggest thing that I've done is just all the things I've done in personal development. I went for so long, probably 10 years without, you know, I growing up, I played all sports, you know, all different kinds of sports and high school and college, worked out every day, you know, as an athlete. And I guess after that stopped, I just thought, you know, I didn't have to do that anymore. And that was a mistake, you know, because I got and you know, when you start a business and, you know, I just get so hyper-focused on one thing. And in doing that, I just made terrible decisions, you know, with my health and eating and not working out or being active at all and just got just in terrible shape. I felt terrible, looked terrible. You know, I didn't want to go even have my picture taken, you know, at all. And, you know, I was going to get some life insurance and had one of those home evaluations and got on that scale and just thought, this is just out of control. You know, so at that point, I just, I had been, I guess, 
I think you put me on to Ed Milet and Andy Frisola and had been listening to a couple of their podcasts and it kind of started, you know, getting in my head. You know, I knew I needed to do something. And so I, I just – actually, at the time, we, we did a – I think that fall, I think uh, not last year, but the year before, we did like a company weight loss, you know, contest. And and that's kind of what started it for me. We, it was, I think it was $500 by Christmas, you know, here we lost the most weight. And I just – kept going with it and then uh I guess last spring Andy Priscilla came out with seventy five hard, you know, on, on Instagram and his podcast and all that type of stuff and I just said I've just kinda always been that way. I'm just gonna jump in with two feet and go all in and sometimes it's bad for me but sometimes, you know, it works out and it took me about two hundred days to do it, you know, just because I failed several times. But uh I got to take my picture too many times and yeah. but I think that it took me that long to break all those old habits and and terrible discipline that I had before. And it's the best thing I've ever done in my life by far. How's it changed you to this day? Man, when you first look at something like that and you do it for a day or two, you think, how am I going to do all this in a day? And what it ends up making you do is you, it makes you weed out all the crap. You know, the stuff that you're watching TV for two hours or you're sitting on yourself, you know, on your phone on Instagram or Facebook for hours at a time just scrolling. You know, it makes you prioritize and do the important thing. You know, and and I'll probably get more done by 12 o'clock now than I would do in a day before, plus do all this other stuff. You know, as far as reading books that I never did before, you know, eating right, it literally takes maybe two hours a day. And I just started getting up super early. and going to bed about the same time, you know, so, and I think it just makes you prioritize your life in general, you know, and just got more in depth with, you know, a lot of personal development and applied to being the RTA syndicate and was super excited when I got accepted to that. So that's been a game changer for me just to be around, you know, guys that are worth hundreds of millions of dollars and just super tactical advice on, you know, simple situations that it just clicks for you you know and a lot of those guys are you know 250 you know 300 million dollar companies and teaching us so, so many things I, I just can't even you know it wouldn't need 10 podcasts to talk about it but uh it's just been probably the best thing that overall for my personal development the best year of my life i'm a completely different person today than i was a year ago how much weight have you lost i've lost 60 pounds damn like since yeah Man, we talk about this. I've tried to apply to the Arte Syndicate uh, two years now and been declined both years. And I'd like to think it's primarily because I don't make any kind of money right now. And it requires a pretty significant <laughs> financial investment that I cannot afford right now because I can barely afford anything in life. But I mean, you were one of like, I don't think it was like 100 out of 30,000 or something like that to make it. So it's pretty damn cool to see you in it. Yeah, I think they already had fifty or something like that, and there was they took another fifty out of thirty-three thousand. Damn, this year, so that was that was pretty awesome. Yeah, yeah, and you're going to Canada with that group next week. Yeah, we're headed to Whistler Saturday, so that it's pretty it's pretty intense too. I mean, they, at these summits, uh, they schedule our days out, you know, by thirty minute increments. You know, so I mean, there's really no not a lot of cell phone communication unless somebody's posting to their. Instagram or stories or something like that in between speakers and you know your hand hurts for for days for writing so many notes but it's just an awesome time and all the guys I don't know how they pick so many cool people you know guys and girls you know in that whole group that are just 
all the same, you know, caliber people. You know, there's no, there's no assholes in the whole group. You know, I, I don't know how, I, I want to pick our employees the same way they picked that group. Yeah. It's what I told somebody. So figure out how they did that. But pretty cool. But anyway, yeah. Well, it's been a while here. So I guess we're going to have to have to wrap up because I know you have things to do and I got plenty of shit to do. I guess to wrap it up, what kind of advice do you have for someone starting out in the industry? It's, I'm asked this all the time. Like I said, we've touched on it a little bit. I just want to be really clear to someone who's thinking about getting started in construction, mining, or another blue collar industry. Cause I talk about this a lot online. It's not for everybody. It's for a very specific type of person, but what are your thoughts on, you know, what people should do starting out and focus on and, do you have any advice for them? I think the biggest thing is just go get a job to get experience. Yeah. And when you do get that job, be eager to learn and ask questions and make friends with the older guys, you know, on that crew or in that company and make them understand that you want to learn, you know, and, and when you do that, they want to teach you also, because I feel like, you know, most of the older people in the industry realize that when they leave, you know, their knowledge is gone. And they want to pass it down to someone, you know. And so just one showing up with a work ethic, you know, and work harder than everybody else. And don't don't be that young guy that's standing around not doing any work while all the older guys are, you know, watching you stand there and doing all the work. You yeah. know, it, that's the first way to piss them off, you know, and, and not give you the time of day. So outwork everybody there and, and earn their respect and then pick their brain every chance you get. Eat lunch with them. You know, sit down and just talk to them. You know, watch the guys as they're operating equipment and realize what the controls do before you ever even get up there. So when they tell you to go move it, just testing you, you know, and you already know what the controls do and you don't look like an idiot. You know, and then they, they just get more and more confidence in you and they end up liking you and wanting to, you know, teach you stuff. And then if you got time on lunch, ask somebody if you can hop in a machine and learn how to run it. And if you like GPS and you like surveying, you know, next time the guys are out there asking if, if you can, you know, make labor or pay and go learn, you know, what they're doing, you know, and just don't be afraid to ask people to do things, you know, or, or ask people to learn, you know, because I think at the end of the day, people want to teach other people things, but nobody's just really willing to, one, work hard and show that they're, they're there to learn. But most people are just there to take a paycheck and take, you know, bring more value than what you're actually taking. And I think it goes a long way. Yep. Yeah. And I guess this industry just kind of to start doesn't really tolerate those people that are just trying to skate by. I feel like those people yeah. wash out pretty quick. Yeah. Or they, they end up bouncing around to a lot of places. Oh yeah. Know? Well, sweet. I, so I, I've really, I've really enjoyed it. This has been fun. We may have to do another one. Yeah. Later, yeah. Hopefully so. we well, you know, hopefully you're way beyond a hundred million the next time we talk and, and yeah, we can talk yeah. all about that growth and how you went from being this small little construction company that you're at now to where you're at, you know, playing with the big boys then. Now that's a short term goal. So we'll, we'll get there. Pretty <laughs> I, soon. I know. I know you're thinking way beyond that. And we're already thinking way beyond where we're at, too. That's the yeah. it's the blessing and a curse. You always want more. Yeah. All right. Cool. Well, thanks. Well, I Dylan. think that's where the drive comes from. Okay. Yeah, it's there. It's there in both of us. And I know it's there with with a lot of other people, too. So hopefully this helped them out. And. Hopefully we can start painting the picture on, you know, how these construction companies actually work and the behind the scenes of everything. So I appreciate you spending so much time with us. I know you're real busy and uh, I'm sure we'll be talking real soon. Yeah, I appreciate you inviting me on, man. It's, yeah. it's been cool. It's been well, an actually, honor, so we'll be, I appreciate it. We'll be visiting Rosso uh, next week. I know you won't be there, but, but we'll be checking you guys out. All it right. Sounds good, man. We'll talk soon here.